Welcome to the Influential Nonprofit, the show for nonprofit leaders to grow their influence so they can grow their income and impact. Now, here's your host, Marianne Dersch. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Influential Nonprofit. I am your host, Mary Ann Dersch, and I talk with nonprofit leaders about growing their influence so they can grow their impact. And today I have Suzanne Lang-Lois. Did I say your name, last name right? Because I don't know if I've ever said that. It, you know, it's actually Langlois, but since we're not in Quebec or in France, <laughs> Langlois is a perfectly great phonetic and, way. And since we're both from St. Louis and we butcher all the French, of, That's right. you know, like people don't understand St. Louis is a French city by heritage, but we mispronounce every single French name in our city. So you blend right in here because it's not, I, it's not Chateau, it's Chodo. It's not Gravois. It's (laughs) Well, I have Suzanne here. She is the executive director of Meds and Food for Kids. And we're going to talk about, you know, running an organization in two different countries, being an interim ED and all kinds of cool stuff. I love you. I love your story. And, you know, you did take my influence course. So I got to know you a lot about that. We can talk a little bit about that too. And I, you know, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you on the show was just really because you were a board member, right? And then you became an ED and you have this amazing, like broad perspective, you know, as far as being in both those shoes. So before I get into that, why don't you give yourself a little intro to the people, like anything else you want to share about yourself? Sure. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just share a little bit about my background because I'm a firm believer that, you know, in life, there's not one path. There are many paths that people take. And it's really when you give yourself opportunities to do things where you're following your heart, your career, and your, I guess, how you spend your, your work hours kind of follow from that. So this is my very first nonprofit job, which is odd and daunting because it's the CEO position. I started out my career as a journalist, and that's kind of key because as a journalist, you you don't know anything. You come into a situation and you have to ask a lot of questions. People expect you to, and so you're comfortable doing that. And then after you've asked a sufficient number of questions, you synthesize the information, and then you you report it out. Um, So you have to develop relationships with people on trust. After that, I started a business, a coffee business called Caldi's here in St. Louis. And again, you know, that was a, a humbling lesson in, in what I didn't know and in how to manage, again, manage relationships with people and everything. I, uh, after I sold my business, I taught entrepreneurship and business communications at WashU for a bit. And that's, it was around that time that I joined the board of Meds and Food for Kids. It's really a wonderful organization. I had always been a little, you know, I donated a little bit to them. So I was always on their mailing list, but I didn't join their board until 2010. And that's when I got, you know, a board view of the organization, which I learned when I stepped in as interim CEO in July is very, very different than running the organization. You you know, you're an insider, you know about the organization, but you don't know the granular detail level about the organization. Yeah. um, Like you do when you're an executive director. All right. I want to explore that a little more. And before I do that, um, I always start with the same question, which is tell me something 
that you're really proud of, but you don't get to brag about that often. That I'm really proud of that I don't yeah. get to brag about? Okay. Yeah. Let's see. It's pride that's tripping me up. I'm very, I would say it's not, I'm not proud of this, but nobody knows about it, but I'm very happy about this. This brings a lot of- I'll take it. (laughs) Okay. My mom died when I was young. And so I don't really, you know, and I'm old now. And so I don't really know what like old age looks like for women because I didn't live with my mom when she was older. I didn't know her. And so I kind of decided to do something about that. And I made a point of making friends with older women. I started this like maybe five or six years ago. And it's been super enriching. I'm really, I guess I'm proud of the fact that I intentionally did this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very happy and about how enriching my life is, how enriched my life is by the presence of these older friends that I've made. You know, that is beautiful. And I guess I never thought about, you know, because my, my mother was a model for aging for me and not having that model. Then you're like, okay, well, I'll go find some people to teach yep. me to, you know to guide me into this because I didn't have that. That's, that's incredible. It's good to just like bear witness to their lives because, you know, they, and and to see what they confront and how they do it. And the same sense of you started this conversation, like you didn't know, right? Like you go in from a place of not knowing and, you know, and then just open yourself up to it. Okay. So let's get back in because we met when you had just started at the ED position. So tell me what this experience has been like. Well, first of all, Maybe you can share a little bit about your board experience and then how you wound up in the executive director role. Sure. Yeah. So I joined the board in 2010 of Meds and Food for Kids, and it has a wonderful mission. What, what we do is we have a, we're a social enterprise, so we're a nonprofit, but we have two revenue streams. We sell our product. Our product is a therapeutic food that we make in our factory in Capation, Haiti, and we sell it to large NGO customers. Our biggest customer, for example, is UNICEF. And then the other thing that we do from our administrative offices here in St. Louis is that we do all of our fundraising. And that's our second revenue stream is fundraising. And um, our board is based in St. Louis. And, you know, we do governance and oversight from here too. So it's just, it's a very meaningful organization to me because it's in many ways followed the same trajectory as my coffee business, you know, starting at kind of ground zero and doing something quite, quite hard, feeding people. Meds and Foods for Kids happens to feed very malnourished children in Haiti suffering from SAM, severe acute malnutrition. And we treat them with this therapeutic food that we make. But I was, I also was attracted to serving on the board because I feel like MFK does really hard things that most organizations just wouldn't even tackle, like eradicating aflatoxin in the peanut supplies from peanut farmers in Haiti so that we could buy those peanuts and use them in our product, our product is a peanut base. So, you know, that's a hard thing to do, but our founder, Pat Wolf, did it. She figured out a way to, you know, corral a group of people to help her really identify the sources and the causes in the ag supply chain of these aflatoxins. And so now we're able to buy from Haitian farmers, Haitian peanut farmers, which helps us build capacity in Haiti. Haiti's a rough country. And so we build capacity with farmers, we build capacity by hiring Haitian men and women to work in our factory. And by training them and doing ongoing investments in our in our factory there. And so serving on the board was very meaningful because I served on it when it was still kind of in a startup mode and in an expansion mode, which rang true to my experiences in the coffee business. But as it's grown, you know, our needs have changed and our and our board roster has changed. 
you know, and we have we now have people who are very sophisticated in understanding how to make money off a commodity, essentially. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. And when I got on the executive committee of the board as the board secretary, I got, you know, yet a further inside look, pulling back of the veil and into the operations of the organization. And I realized it's extremely complex, but that was very challenging and interesting. So when our founder decided that she was going to retire, we did a formed a succession committee that I'm on. And after a, a couple of, of iterations of leaders, I stepped in as the CEO mm-hmm. while, we, while we undergo a, uh, a year-long CEO search. And I want to dive into that just a little bit because I think what you did was really smart. And I know there was, there was a lot of bumps along the road to get to this place. And, you know, that I had a few months ago, I had Laura Rossman and her business, she does interim CEO, interim ED work. But to take a pause between the founder and the, to just to kind of like, like reset your identity as an organization with, before so that you understand who you are as an organization so you can attract that person, right? To, to help like, like, who are we? So if, if your founder is stepping back, then who are we now, right? Like that's a, that's a shift. And just to take some time to explore that, Right. So that way, when you're ready, you can step in and that you'll understand who you you'll understand who you are as an organization. So, you know, who you're looking for. Right. Because you're not if you don't know, like just like us, like you and me, like if I don't know who I am, what I stand for, what I believe in, how you know, then how do I know if somebody something someone is right for me or something is right for me? And I feel like that decision to have you come in and give you that space feels like, you know, because it's a cultural shift. Right. And I don't think, I just feel like we don't really pay attention because you have a culture, whether you want to or not, you have a brand, whether you want one or not. Right. Like, and so when you intend, let's intentionally shape our culture. And then from that place of intention, then pick a successor. So I think that's really smart. I mean, you know, full disclosure, we did have somebody in between me as interim and her as founder. But for just for six months, though. But yeah, I mean, that's when we realized we really right. knew exactly what you just said. Is we is need a break? Like, yeah, yeah, let's think. Let's. And so then you stepped in, and as CEO, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, right. So what do you what do you like for people who are listening? Who are like, I wish my board understood us better. Like, what what is the wisdom that you that you can share about you know about stepping into this job? for the CEOs, EDs, leaders that are listening to this, like that are struggling with board relationships? Mm. So one of the first things that I did to, that I don't think I would have done had I not been on the board is when I stepped in, I realized, oh my gosh, Marianne, I served 10 years on the board, right? And I stepped in and within a week, I was like, I know a fraction of what I need to know and a fraction of what I thought I knew as a board member. So I put together like an FAQ for the board. And these were all questions that I needed answered right away to do my job. But I also realized the board should know this, you know, because it's it's very interesting and it helps, it would help them understand the the strategic decisions, not the day-in, day out management decisions, but the strategic decisions that we have made should be making right now and will and will need to make in the future better. And so, you know, I put down all my questions on a piece of paper and I walked around to all of our, you know, we have six people in our admin office here in St. Louis and a number of people 
in our in our Haiti operations, and I asked them a whole bunch of questions, and they answered, and I just put it put it into sort of like an FAQ form for the board, and it was you know basically we on the board know the whys behind what we do. Why are we doing what we do? Well, we're doing it because there there is such bad malnutrition in Haiti. Why is there such bad malnutrition? Because it's very poor. How can we address that? Well, we can provide employment. We can provide this product that reverses malnutrition. So we know that at, at the board. That's our mission, you know? Right, right. How can we continue to build capacity? Well, we can we can buy, you know, vertically. We can buy from Haitian peanut farmers and, you know, other local things. But why do we do that? And what are the mechanics behind, you know, once, once we sell to our largest customer, what do they do with our product? I don't right. really know. I knew that they got it to kids. I knew that they, you know, reversed malnutrition. But like, really, how, how does that happen? Because that really, when, when you understand on a little bit more, de- not, you know, not a day in and day out management level, but on a slightly more detailed level, then you can really get more fine tuning in your thinking about your strategic future. So I would say as a board member, dig in a little deeper, you know, dig in a little deeper to really understand some of the fundamental mechanics not where not where all the gears are oiled, but some of the fundamental mechanics of how your mission is carried out, because it'll make you a stronger board member, and it'll also make you a more meaningful board member to the staff that you work with. Yeah. So it sounds like there's like this really high level view, and there's a really detail. There's a, this place in between, yeah. right? And more than high level. And you know, I I've been on the board of some organizations, but I was on the board of the Foster Adopted Care Coalition, and I also they were my client. Like I have kids adopted out of foster care. So I understood the inner workings of that organization because I had used, I'll take, you know, a lot of their services. They had, you know, helped us. I was a client of theirs. And I now I'm realizing, you know, that was very beneficial because I did understand a lot of the mechanics of like how they delivered services. Right. And like, and the impact that those have. Yeah, I don't have to know, you know, exactly how everything works in the minutia because those are some pretty long arms that are we stir in that pot. Yeah. And and I would say that's not a board's job. Right. And I do feel like there is a fear of that. Like when we pull back the curtain, now are they going to be in our everyday business? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And, you know, because I said some of those, they can have some pretty long arms in there, you know, micromanaging. When you're like, no, I want, I need my board to have a big picture view. I need them to be the ambassadors and the advocates. And what, what I'm hearing you say though, is you can be a much more effective ambassador and advocate and, you know, and strategic leader when you understand those mechanics a little bit more deeply. And yeah. And it's just a little, it's just one level down. I mean, you know, the board is like, you know, most boards like soar at the Eagle level. Yeah. Way, <laughs> they can see lots of miles, yes. lots of miles, yes. right? And staff and executive directors and CEOs, you know, we're kind of like at the at the ground level. We're like the fox. You know, we, we have to know what's around every turn. We have to be proactive, everything. Um, you know, reactive, proactive, the worst. So we're on the ground like the fox. But I think a good level that nobody really thinks about for a board member is kind of like the blue jay level. You know, you're still <laughs> in the trees. You're still up high. But you're like, you're not above the treetops. You're in the trees. And you're looking down and you're, and you're kind of like pushing in every now and then like a blue jay does when you have a question, when you kind of want to know a little bit more. And it's going to help you understand the organization better. You're not going to get onto the ground with the fox, though. No. Right. You're going right. to, but you're, but you're not going to just stay above the trees. 
And, you know, and I do feel like that is part of the communication gap is one is so in the day to day. And then that big picture and like, in my experience, I have seen that there's a big communication gap because of that, you know, so allowing for, and, you know, and for you, that was you stepping into the role and creating these FAQs for another one. It could be like, you know, bringing board members, you know, into different experiences or, you know what I mean? Or like showing them different things, because I think for everyone, how that looks may, may look, you know, like how you do that may look a little different. And for me, when you stepped in and you're like, whoa, I, I, ha- I had no idea really what, you know, what was happening. And then also you didn't want to over-inform, right? They don't need to do your job. They just, right. they needed, right. but they could do their job better by knowing more. Yeah. And, and also they can appreciate the organization more. Exactly. Yeah. And in that appreciation, then become better advocates and ambassadors, better leaders, better fundraisers, right? For sure. Because- and, you know, and I think that, you know, we don't, I don't know. I mean, I like to use our board as a collective brain that helps, yeah. you know, if I can take stuff out of my brain and have a collective brain noodle it around a little bit, you know, maybe not take it out of my brain, but they're helping me think through things, you know, that makes me a better leader. And I am all for, you know, having that type of, of assistance. And, you know, I don't find it threatening or annoying or anything, but, so- and, and, you know, part of that is the culture of an organization. We sort of have always had a working board probably not a model for everybody, but things are, life is complicated. The world is complicated. And if you can have, you know, other people who share your same mission and share your same goals, thinking through stuff alongside you and talking, you you know, it's, it's helpful. Yes. I wanted you to talk a little bit, because I find this so fascinating about managing, because you manage people in Haiti, you have employees there, right? Quite a few. So what is 88 employees. So what is it like, you know, managing them from it's, it's, it's very, very challenging. What it requires is having, you know, some key managers there, which, which we have, we're fortunate to have that really understand the manufacturing process. They have good labor relations, you know, with your staff, they understand the labor code of the country that you're, that you work in. And they're very good communicators to you and you're very good communicator to them. So what we work on as an organization is constantly figuring out more and more ways to empower our Haitian managers and our Haitian staff to be autonomous while still having them, you know, while still holding them accountable and, you know, having them work and seeing us as support and assistance. And, you know, and we have to know when we need to push in and when we, when we need to you know, be deferential to them, sometimes they're going to have relationships in Haiti because they're Haitian with key people, you know, everybody from vendors to government officials that we just can't have as non-Haitians. Right. So I think, you know, respecting that and identifying that and, and being appropriately deferential to that is really important. Yet it's important as the CEO too, that I establish my own relationships with key people in Haiti. Yeah. And I remember one of our managers said to me early on, you know, I said, you need to introduce me to this, you know, very powerful person who's the, the, the men, she works in the ministry of health. And he said, I will, you know, and so he, he set up an introduction for us and we had a good talk. And then he said, and I, and I thanked him for it afterwards. And we talked about the talk and everything. And then he said, now you need to figure out how to establish your own relationship with her. And, you know, I felt, I felt like a kid, 
And I needed to hear that from him. And I needed to figure that out. And I did, you know, I found some points of connection with her, but those things, that kind of cultural deference and sensitivity, when you're a guest in somebody else's country, when you're helping them, but they haven't asked for your help, those are very sensitive situations that you're in all the time. And you, you have to be, you have to continually inform yourself about what is how you're being perceived. And you always want to be respectful and let the partners that you have in that country know that you're honored to be a part of, to be a part of their, of their world. And you respect that you're here as a guest. You're not right. You're not here to tell them how to live their lives or change their country. So when we were working together, when you were in the course, one of the big things was, um, well, I can't remember the name you had for the meeting, this annual meeting. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, um, the General Assembly. The General Assembly. Yeah. That's very formal. And that they hadn't had it in a while, right? Like this was something. And and like when everybody sort of gets together and talks about how they feel about the job and the company. And there was like a lot. And you were going to do this. And there was a lot of hesitancy. You know, like, of course, you're like nervous going in there. Like, like you're in front of a firing line. And but we worked a lot on you know, kind of releasing the outcome and just not really about like solving anything, but just really tapping into the deep listening, which is sort of what you were just saying, like just being very deferential and, and absorbing instead of like, you know, judging or trying to change anything, just really being just present with them. Because that is like the biggest thing to when people are upset about something or, or, or have an objection or a concern is just being seen and heard. And that just lowers it. So, so how was the general assembly then? You know what? It went well. And I, I just, I approached it with nothing but humility. I mean, I, I was there to listen and to learn myself and it was, it was great. You know, as, as the leader of an organization, a new, new person, I, it made me understand from the worker's perspective, how much they didn't know about the organization that they worked with you know, they worked for and how much more we should communicate on a regular basis about why we're doing what we do and how we fundraise, how fundraising is such an important part of what keeps our operation in Haiti going. It was also important for me to learn, you know, where are their points of friction and where are their points of gratitude? What, what do they not want to, to change? You know, what are the things that are working really, really well? Yeah. Because I think we look at, at, you know, opportunities for people to air their, what's on their mind as, as opportunities for them to air their grievances. Really, it's opportunities to also just talk about what's working and, you know, please don't mm -hmm. change this. We like it. Right. So it was a long three hours, but it was a good way to, I think, establish a collective sense of esprit de corps. Yeah. And so much of that is, you know, like you being willing and to manage your emotions, right? Like to not, right. To just allow for that without taking things, you know, personally or, you know, like, and I think that's such an important part of the receptivity, you know, is like, I, whatever they say, it's okay. You know? Right. And, oh, and yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you brought up fundraising and how, you know, I know there's probably a lot of people listening who fundraise for, work being done in another place, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so how does that shape your fundraising 
because the work you do isn't local? So we look for people who have a heart for children and also who understand that so much of the fortune in life that we have is just by dint of where we were born. It's just by circumstance, you know? And there are a lot of people out there with that sensibility that they recognize palpably that they've had opportunities given to them, that they've had food in their stomach, that they've had health, that they've held their children and their grandchildren. And all of that is only made possible by the fact that they happen to be born in a country where healthcare and food most of the time are available, or I should say have been available to them. And when they recognize that those basic things are not available to most of the people in a country so close to us, you know, proximally close to us, but, you know, also just historically close to us. There are a lot right. of ties between Haiti and the U.S. You know, it opens their heart to, to helping. And so really, those are the biggest points of entry for our donors are, you know, just children and Haiti. But, you know, I'm also really happy to say that there are other points of entry that we're just not recognizing. I mean, we're, we're putting solar panels in our factory because there's no reliable grid. And there are many people who they're not going to, you know, they're, they're not moved to give because of, you know, hunger or because of ch child welfare. They're moved to give because of the environment. And so they're extremely happy to, to donate to help us solarize our power and use, you know, burn less oil. So it's, it's interesting to see, and it's very reassuring to realize that there are people all over the world who are interested in supporting what you do. And there are lots of doors. There are lots of entryways into that. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing from that is really like, you know, what we work on in the influence is I don't have to convince you to care. We just find what are the values do we share? Right. And that, okay, the environment, you know, yes, that here's how we're working. Oh, like, here's what I do. You know, how can we combine? So I had a colleague of mine on the show the other day. He's not a fundraiser, but he talked about his experiences as a philanthropist. And, but one of the things that we talked about was in this book called The Soul of Money. The, the author is Lynn Twist, and she was a hunger relief project fundraiser. So she went all over the world, right, to raise money. But one of the things she said is like, we give money in the West because that's what we have, right? Mm -hmm. like, like, and money doesn't solve problems, right? People solve problems. Money is a tool, but people solve problems. So in the sense of like, you have people on the ground that know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like they know they need the money. So like, but the money, and then, so it's, so we're all working together, right? Like, like, and, but I thought, cause you said, you know, like, just by circumstance, I have money, you know? So in the West, we give money because that's what we have. Other yeah. people give other things because that's what they have, right? Yeah. So they, they're going to give their intellect. They're going to give their experience and their knowledge of the landscape, the, both the physical and, you know, like political landscape, right? Like that's, you could not create that with money. And when you look at that way, like, okay, we give because we have it. And then we, and then, then we create they have this intelligence, right? They have the experience of the land and the politics and the da da. And then you have money. Okay, wow, what a great partnership. <laughs> exactly, right? And I think the old model was let's pull this money and save you or fix you. And this is now like let's invest in because you're creating jobs, you're you're supporting families, not just yeah, we're getting to the root causes of, of right. you know why why are children not 
having enough food. And it's not because their parents don't want to feed them. It's because their parents don't have jobs. They don't have incomes. And so you're right. The whole way of, of looking at at philanthropy, I think has had a sea change and, you know, we don't do relief. I mean, we do, you know, if, if there's a hurricane, we will certainly donate, donate our product, but for a systemic change to happen, you have to build capacity in the country with, you know, well, you have to help build, build capacity. You have to help the people in the country build their capacity. You're not doing it for them, right? So you're creating jobs and when you have jobs, you have income. And when you have income, you're able to provide for your children and to provide a better future for your country. And that's not relief. That's systemic change. Yeah, that I, I do think that is the way forward for philanthropy, which and I like how you put that is not relief, right? It's it's sustainability. It's, you know, it's and instead of rescue, you know, it's it, because we know that we've seen historically that not always worked because we there was no capacity building. And when the funding stops, then then we've got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you're employing people. And I feel like that is such an amazing thing because it could have been probably a lot easier to make this stuff someplace else, you know, in the, in the, in the beginning, you know, and, and like, okay, but if we're going to do it, we're going to do it here and we're going to employ these people. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, This has been awesome. I, I can't believe we're almost out of time. Well, this so, has been super fun to talk to you again, Mary. I know. I, I, I just want to ask one last question. It's a quick one. So you and I do live in the same city. So if we ever wound up, you know, I love karaoke. And so my question is, if we ever wound up at karaoke together, what would be, what's your go-to song? Oh, wow. I probably would sing, uh, Maybe I'm Amazed. By Paul Ooh. McCartney. Oh my gosh. I don't think I've ever, that's a good one. It's so moving. Yeah. You no, know, it's not your typical karaoke song. Cause it's not, you know, it's not, up, it's, I find it it's not like Sweet Caroline or something. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah you're yeah. not going to dance to it, but you know, as a shy person, it, you know, if you put me in front of a karaoke mic, I'd be like, oh my God, but I could really get into the soulful aspect of that kind of like ode to love. And I yeah. like Paul. <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for sharing your experiences with us and best of luck to you, and especially in your travels. Cause well, I know you, you, so you're much. there quite, you're back and forth quite a bit, right? Like once a month you're there. Yeah. Well, less so right now, just cause it's, it's a little tricky right now, but uh, yes. And thank you for this opportunity so much, Marianne. It's been great to talk about boards in general and and MFK and and to see you. Yes. Okay. And we'll put in the show notes, um, the link to the website and socials. If you want to get in touch with Suzanne or see more of the work that the organization does, you can get it there. And as always, if you want to learn more about growing your influence, like I taught Suzanne to do you, I have um, the influential nonprofit.com. You can go there and download your up level, your influence starter kit. A lot of the concepts and the things that I talk about and that I work with my course participants and clients on are in this guide. So download those goodies. It's free. It's my gift to you. And we will see you next week on the influential nonprofit. Thanks for listening to The Influential Nonprofit with your host, Marianne Dersh. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Also, check out theinfluentialnonprofit.com for more resources on growing your influence so you can raise more and do more.